Welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Financial Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Rakim Sabri, and I have another very special guest. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how we met, but before I do that, I just want to introduce Martha, and um, this is her first podcast appearance, so I'm super excited. We're going to give her a very warm welcome, um, and I'm imagining the cheering of audience claps in the background, but welcome, Martha, please. Uh, introduce yourself, tell the audience who you are and how you came to um, really do the work that you do today. Hi, Um, really honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, So um, my background is a little different. Um, I worked in healthcare for many years, uh, was a healthcare researcher. I actually have a doctorate in research methods, um, have worked as a clinician, um, practitioner, and um, an educator as well. Uh, But I've always had a secret passion for personal finance. So when I had the opportunity to go work for a fintech startup, a company based in South Carolina called Questus, um, I jumped at that. And I have been with them for about five years now. And um, I also have a background in psychology, in behavioral science. So I work as their behavioral scientist and help design their coaching program. And so I lead a team of financial coaches for them. Fantastic. And shout out to Questus and the Questus team. Uh, So I met Martha through working with Questus. I actually contribute to their blog. Um, on occasion and the background rather the alignment in um, Martha's background and my interest particularly in financial psychology is what got us to talking was what got us connected and ultimately what landed us here today so um, we have a whole bunch of things that we can touch on but um, why don't we dig in a little bit deeper into how you um, ended up in the behavioral psychology side of personal finance, because I think you know, for some, for people like you and I who are in the space, and, and what I've been finding lately is that it's a pretty close knit group. Um, mm-hmm. Finance and psychology makes sense as kind of the melding of two worlds, but outside of that space, a lot of people don't know that really your personal finance is is hugely influenced by, you know, psychology, your own psychology, and and even, um, you know, just marketing psychology and and just psychology period. So kind of talk about um, how did you stumble upon this world? And um, Martha's a PhD, so she's a doctor. And uh, talk about your your journey there as well. Sure. Um, Well, gosh, I think it's interesting. I'm actually getting ready to do to help give a workshop um, next week where we're going to talk about financial psychology. And um, one of the things that's always interesting to me is if you look at the history of behavioral finance, initially, um, a lot of economists basically started looking at this. And the assumption was that people were always completely rational. Um, about financial decisions, that people would always do the thing that was in their um, in their economic interest, like what is going to result in the most money for me if I have a choice here. 
Um, and people, psychologists who started doing research in that area found that people often made what looked like pretty irrational from an economic standpoint. People make um, choices that sometimes don't make the most financial sense, that don't result in the most money um, for them. So why is that? And it's because um, it's because money is very emotional for people. And we often make emotionally based decisions, you know, in terms of what is comfortable for us. Um, and I know we have a shared interest around uh, trauma and working with trauma. One of the things that is true for people who've experienced any kind of trauma is that, um, especially if it's something that you experienced growing up, it's very familiar. And sometimes things that are familiar are just emotionally more comfortable for us. I think it's super important that we uh, take some time to kind of just pause and, and let that sink in, right? Um, I mean, I had a conversation earlier today where a friend of mine was struggling between two choices, one that was of great benefit, but not familiar. And then mm -hmm. one that he identified as not being a situation that he wanted to be in anymore, but it was familiar. And, and, and the dilemma there was, do you go with what you know, but suffered through, or do you go with the unknown and, and possibly um, can thrive in or, or enjoy even. So I think that's a really good point. Um, offline, you and I talked about, you know, your previous life, right, as a massage therapist. And we talked about how trauma manifests in the body. Can you kind of share a little bit of insight into what your experience has been um, in identifying that? And if there's any parallels between how we react to trauma physically and um, our mistakes around money? Um, gosh, that's a big question. Um, so one of the things that I know as um, somebody who has worked with people physically as a massage therapist is that trauma does get held in the body. Um, when we're children, especially younger children, we don't have the same kind of um, cognitive uh, capacity to process things that we do as adults when we're children. So one of the ways that we cope with um, traumatic situations is by tightening our musculature so that we are kind of numbing ourselves out a little bit um, and we don't breathe as deeply. We kind of hold our breath again so that we don't it's a way to manage overwhelming feelings. We just kind of shut down our feelings a little bit more that way. Um, and we um, stop being as present in the moment when we're experiencing trauma. So all of those things, um, you know, situations that remind us of traumatic events, can trigger those same kind of responses in the body. And I would say um, that might be one of the ways that it can intersect with um, financial decisions that we make. So for example, if um, you know spending money on stuff that we don't need is one of the ways that we cope with feeling uncomfortable, um, then you know that can show up as like overspending for people. 
you know, buying stuff. Maybe, you know, maybe it's buying clothes that you don't need. Maybe it's buying some other thing that, you know, has a, a personal meaning for you that helps you feel more comfortable. Um, those are some of the ways I think it can show up. Yeah, definitely. I, um, in episode one, I interviewed a financial therapist. Her name is Asia Evans. And she talked about how many of the um, attitudes, beliefs, um, even habits that we establish as adults financially mm-hmm. start in childhood. So oh, it's really totally. interesting yeah, oh. to, to hear how um, the, the, the child psychology really mm-hmm. has an impact not only on how we um, experience financial trauma, but trauma as a whole, like the spectrum of trauma that exists and what those parallels look like in um, adulthood as we start kind of navigating those experiences on our own with the ability to kind of cognitively understand, but maybe uh, dissociate from those huge influences. Um, when, when Asia and I were talking, we shared how our backgrounds were very different, right? I grew up experiencing aspects of poverty and she identified her um, experience growing up was one of privilege. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about our journeys and how we both ended up in this space, right? Coming from completely different ends of the spectrum. But as I'm listening to you and, and I'm thinking about trauma and the manifestation of trauma in the body and, you know, how we cope, particularly financially, it's, um, it's giving a different dimension, if you will, to what the experience or rather the impact of poverty um, as a child looks like on financial trauma and adulthood. The interesting thing to me about that, I mean, people totally absorb messages about money, how you're supposed to do money, how money works in the world. You get messages not only from what your family says, but what you observe your family to do. And you think that that is the norm and that everybody does money the same way. And of course, you know, everybody does money differently. Um, You know, one of the situations I see as a coach sometimes is that spenders marry savers. And it's like, you know, you can see people's heads explode when they realize that somebody has a totally different uh, orientation and expectations around money. So, you know, I've made this statement um, on my own, but I just kind of want to get your opinion on it. Would you say that um, everyone either has or will experience financial trauma at some point? I think everybody does to some extent. I mean, some people do grow up with a great deal of privilege and that, um, that can be its own kind of financial trauma in terms of um, maybe expectations that people develop. One of the ways that you develop good judgment, there's kind of a joke about this, that good judgment comes from experience, experience comes from making mistakes. And most people learn about money oftentimes through making financial mistakes. And probably everybody has, you know, a financial mistake somewhere in their life that they, you know, would do differently now if they could. Yeah, that's really funny. So episode two, I interviewed uh, Tiffany Grant, who is a financial counselor, among many other things. 
And we had some dialogue around a tweet that was shared by an individual who said that if you have credit card debt, why are you writing about personal finance? And, you know, a lot of personal finance creators kind of took that personally, particularly Black personal finance creators, because mm-hmm. um, some of the, and we'll call it mistakes, but um, some of the decisions that many of us have to make as regular people um, come from a place of not really having a choice, um, mm-hmm. in addition to maybe not knowing any better. And right. so w- when we talk about that fact, right, that maybe mm-hmm. the best person, the most qualified person to give advice, whether that's written or oral, um, is somebody who has gone through some some mistake, right, or has made some decision that they now have the hindsight to say, you know what, if, if I could do it all over again, I would do this a little bit differently versus somebody who uh, maybe read about it in a book. I think that is so true. And one of the things that is really important to point out, I think, when we talk about like financial decisions being rational or not rational, um, it is very much dependent on what's rational or irrational really depends on the eye of the beholder. There is definitely like class bias and cultural bias that go into those judgments because that's, you know, that's what they are. And um, there's a really interesting study in psychology um, that was done in the, I'd have to look up the details again, but basically a a really famous like child development study around the marshmallow test. The test essentially was you put a plate with a little marshmallow on it in front of a child, um, tell them that if they can wait 15 minutes, they'll get two marshmallows. And um, basically the idea was how much ability does a child have to delay gratification? Um, and the conclusion of the study, they, they did this test with a bunch of kids, um, did longer term follow-up to see like what happened to them. And the kids who could wait 15 minutes and get the two marshmallows instead of one, who had the ability to delay gratification were more successful, more financially successful later in life. Um, And there's a lot of class bias that was actually involved in that study. Um, Some other researchers went back and looked at it, redid it a few years later and pretty much debunked it. Um, And I think it's really important to keep that in mind because there are situations and I'll use myself as an example here So um, as a white person, I have a certain amount of privilege, Um, but growing up in my family, we had quite a bit of financial instability. There were times when um, my family had money. There were other times where we were having bologna sandwiches for dinner, you know, for a month. So the message that I learned from that that I internalized from that was that when you have money, you better spend it because it might not be there tomorrow. So if I would probably have failed the marshmallow test because it would have made more sense for me given the uncertainty in my situation 
it's a rational decision to eat the marshmallow now because I have some good reasons to trust that nobody's going to give me two marshmallows down the road. Yeah, no, I, uh, I have many thoughts <laughs> happening at once right now. Um, first and foremost, I mean, I'm a huge advocate for inclusive financial content and have been really championing that message of late with, with more aggression and vigor, because mm -hmm. to your point, there's so much in financial education um, or academia really that suggests, or rather that's influenced by, like you said, class privilege, right? So, um, you know, I tell this story all the time. I was introduced to this concept of investing in the stock market when I was in the eighth grade. But at that particular point in time, I was also navigating, you know, a poverty lifestyle, right? So um, how can I think about what investing looks like when I'm trying to figure out, you know, what I'm going to eat for dinner? So, yeah. you know, I think when we when, when we have these conversations, um, we have to have empathy um, is, is really kind of the theme where one of the solutions, right? A cultural competence, I think, is another one to who is our audience? Um, what are they going through? What is their reality right now? Um, and, and I've been repeating this over and over over the last couple of weeks, um, this idea of how can you teach somebody to save for retirement if they don't believe that they'll live that long, right? And so when we talk about delayed gratification, right? Like that is the test of delayed gratification, right? You're looking at, um, I mean, let's say a 21-year-old talking about what they're going to be able to accomplish at 65 mm -hmm. when, you know, there's a possibility that they don't feel like they'll live past 30 or 35 or 40. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that these variables need to be at the forefront of, you know, personal finance conversations um, because it's a variable that I think alienates a lot of people from even wanting to approach, you know, financial acumen, um, these behaviors that we're taught that we should exhibit. Um, and, you know, to your point, we don't know if, if the marshmallow is going to be there tomorrow or if we're going to get double, right? So right. Um, really, really good points. But you said something that triggered a thought. Um, and I want to go in the opposite direction of kind of talking about poverty and really talk about privilege. And I want to talk about money shame in that, right? Mm -hmm. Money shame that comes with having money. When we hear about money wow, shame, we okay. think about how, you know, people don't have money, so they might feel ashamed of what they can't accomplish, right? Or that they can't purchase or they can't do or mm -hmm. they can't experience. But what about the people who feel shame because they have money? Is it, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, that is um, the, the work of the, the Klontzes around money scripts and just like the concept that people develop these money scripts, which are unconscious beliefs about money. Um, and one of the reasons that I think money is such an emotionally loaded topic for people um, is that one of the scripts that I think is really pervasive in our culture we have these like completely schizoid messages of one that um, money will solve all my problems and make me happy. That's like one script. And then a lot of people also have a competing script, which is 
money is the root of all evil and money is a bad thing. I think it's possible that people can feel guilty for having money. Like if you have inherited money, um, you may feel that you don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. You know, you just won the, you know, the genetic lottery and happened to be born into a wealthy family. And so people can can definitely have a sense of, um, I haven't earned this, I don't deserve this. Um, again, going back to childhood trauma, sometimes people can feel that um, they don't deserve to have nice things, for example. You know, you, you mentioned um, expectations earlier mm -hmm. too. Um, what, what are the role or is there a role rather of the pressure associated with those expectations in maybe experiencing money shame? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about this. One is that we live in a culture where we are constantly bombarded with marketing messages telling us that um, we need to like buy this product if we ever want to be in a relationship with somebody. Um, we need to buy this product to make us good enough or make us happy. Or basically, a lot of marketing um, gives us the message that, you know, as you are now, you are less than, and you should buy this product or this service so that you can be loved, so that you can be happy. Um, so I think there just is so much. Um, so many messages that um, it's just hard to tune that out. You have to have, I think, developed a really strong sense of self. Um, you probably need to like stay off social media so that you're not constantly bombarded um, with those kinds of messages. Especially at this time of the year, right? So we're approaching the holiday season. Oh, yes. And, you have uh, to show love by buying people stuff. Exactly, right? And, and, and you know, talking about expectations um, and money shame related to uh, people who have money, right? And this is really kind of an interesting, um, you know, thought wave, if we, if we will, because usually when we're talking about money, at least when I'm talking about, you know, financial trauma, it's from the position of people who don't have. So I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, but back on the topic of the holidays, right? If there might be this idea and, and there's a joke among um, me and my siblings and my um, nephew and nieces, right? My brother, uh, my brother says, oh, you know, Rakim's the rich uncle. <laughs> and uh, so we talk about like being the rich uncle and what does that mean? Uh -huh. And you know, there are days where I feel like, okay, I'll embrace that, right? Like, you know, I make maybe better money decisions than my siblings. But then there are days where it's like, mm, how comfortable do I really feel with that being shared, right? Because then what expectations does that create um, subconsciously, but also very consciously with that younger generation, right? My nephew, my niece, um, the younger children who might say, oh, you know, that's the rich uncle. Well, you know, he should be able to do this or he could do this or, you know, even the expectation of, well, what's he going to leave behind? And, and, and you know, I'm certainly projecting um, because 
my nephews are too young. My nephew and niece is too young to think that way. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how the the child, the early childhood impressions kind of manifest subconsciously um, later in life. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that's something that I can kind of relate to in that, you know, the expectations or, or the burden of expectation can be something that you're experiencing internally and projecting out into the world that then influence the choices that you make or don't make financially. But it could also be a very real expectation externally of you that says, oh, well, you know, you have it, so you should be doing X, Y, Z thing. Because this is what you do for family, right? This is exactly. like, this is part of the part of the message that you know, that people get sometimes as children. And I think too, I mean, just thinking about my own personal pet peeves and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the things that I don't like people, I don't like people counting my money and I don't like people um, like spending my time, right? Like don't schedule things for me. Don't like Mm -hmm. ask me, (laughs) ask me how do I feel about this thing? It sounds like that's more about like autonomy that, you know, it's your time, it's your money, you're the one who gets to decide about that, not somebody else. I think, you know, as we're talking about the um, the expectations and the potential money shame, right, that exists there, because, mm-hmm. and I hate this phrase so much, but perception's reality, right? And so when we talk about, in, in the personal finance community, when we talk about, like, keeping up with the Joneses, Um, You know, some of that is, oh, my neighbor has a new car. I need to get a new car, too. But some of that is also, um, well, I I can get the new car, but how is that going to impact my day to day? You're sparking a a train of thought for me, which is that um, and this comes back to something that I wanted to mention, which is that um, there's a lot, I think, in the in the financial industry to pressure people that if you're not saving retirement, you're not doing the right thing. If you're not buying a house, you're not, you know, you're like not as good as somebody who rents. Um, And one of the things that I love about coaching is that I see part of my role as a coach is to help you articulate and clarify for yourself, what are your goals? What is it that's important to you? And maybe buying that car, even though it might cause you to have to um, move money around and spend less on some other things so that you can have this new car. Maybe that's for some reason is important to you. Like maybe you've never, um, maybe you've never purchased a new car and it's something that emotionally is important to you. If you can do that in a way that um, isn't, you know, hurting you financially somewhere else, why shouldn't you do that if it makes you happy? I think money should make people happy. I think money should give you choices about how you want to live your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes I, yeah. renting makes more sense. There's no shame in, in renting. Yeah. You know, personal finance is personal. We talk about that quite a lot in this community right and um 
Yeah, I think the point that I really want to hit on here is as we're having these conversations, particularly around money shame, is that, um, you know, it's not always the lack of money that contributes to what that shame looks like. It could mm-hmm. be having money that contributes to what that shame looks like. I mean, like mm-hmm. I like I mentioned, you know, your point around the expectations is so spot on. Um, and, and when we're having these conversations um, or when we're consuming content that says that, you know, you need to do X, Y, Z thing in order to be, you know, doing it right. Um, and, and there's so much of that on social media, particularly Twitter, right? We, I, I, there's a tweet, <laughs> there's a tweet that I'm thinking of right now where it's like, if you're not, if your car payment is more than the amount that you're investing per month, then you're doing it wrong. And I'm like, that is so void of color, right? Like uh-huh. there's so many variables that can shape why somebody is going to spend more on their car payment than they're going to be able to invest. First and foremost, because you know, pre-COVID, you needed a car to get to work, right? So that is yeah. the priority. A um, lot of people do need, I mean, public transportation in this country sucks. And, you know, as a taxpayer, I would like to see us invest in um, public transportation infrastructure. Um, But yeah, I think the reality is that in a lot of places, um, if you don't have reliable transportation, you can't hold down a job. Right, right. So, you know, there, again, there's so much color, there's so many variables, there's so much context that's needed um and and the way that this uh financial content is often offered which to be very honest i think is what really pushed me out of you know general financial education and into more of um the financial psychology side of things um and specifically addressing financial trauma in the way that um it shows up in the way that, you know, we can identify it and certainly in the way that we can overcome it. Um, let's talk about the uh, AFCP and uh, FTA. So I know okay. that, and, and I've mentioned FTA and, um, and AFC multiple times across, you know, the various episodes that I've had because, um, first of all, like I'm new into, in the community um, mm-hmm. Just came back from FTA's conference in Colorado this year um, and headed to um, the AFC conference um, next week, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, how and when did you get involved and what what is, what is it like for you being a part of those communities? Um, well, I have to say, I love the um, Financial Therapy Association coffee chat. want to give a shout out to um, people who show up for that regularly. Um, I have not been as active with them as much lately, um, but I look forward to, to going back. Um, AFCPE is a great resource. Um, they have trained um, a lot of financial counselors. I think they are the gold standard when it comes to financial coaching. Um, And I know Sandra Davis has been very involved with them and helped them create their their, uh, coaching certification, um, which is great. So I think they're both really great organizations. Um, I do think AFCPE, I would say, is a little more grounded. 
grounded in the financial coaching aspect of like really helping people figure out what to do like day to day, like the nitty gritty stuff of managing your money day to day and month to month. I think AFCPE is great um, at training people and how to help people with those kinds of things. Um, I would say FTA is a little more kind of um, bringing together the financial services industry, particularly in terms of um, financial advising with financial psychology. And that that is definitely something that I noticed at um, FTA. There were a lot of CFPs. There were a lot of um, like clinical therapists. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who did both. <laughs> um, huge community, great community. Definitely shout out to FTA, shout out to AFCP. Um, shout out to Sandra Davis. Um, I just actually sat on one of her info sessions for um, the certifications within her program, Financial Fitness Coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was there was one before that, like a certificate program that, that she offers. And she has been a wealth of knowledge um, and experience for me on this journey as well. She actually is the person that um, introduced FTA's conference and kind of nudged me to go. So um, yeah, shout out, shout out to Sandra. Hopefully I could get her um, on the podcast one day. She's but, great. Um, She's great. Yeah. And, and, that's what, and that's what, you know, I'm noticing, and I mentioned this kind of earlier, like the, the community of, um, or rather this niche community of financial um, psychology and, and mm-hmm. the people that, that navigate this space is so small. Like if I'm talking to one person who's involved and they're going to mention somebody, like you mentioned the classes and, and I met uh, Dr. Brad uh, earlier this year at FinCon and I had been following him for a while on social media, uh-huh. really big on TikTok, really big on Twitter. And so when I saw him, I'm like, man, like I'm starstruck. And, you know, we had a nice little conversation, but um, it's, it's just really encouraging to see mm-hmm. that more people are um, embracing really kind of the principles of psychology and its role in, in personal finance. And that, you know, when we talk about everything that we talked about today, right? Trauma, mm-hmm. shame, um, the, the reason why people do what they do um, from, you know, their experiences with childhood, like all of that is, is important and necessary in the conversations that we have, um, not only in, in advising people, but in guiding them um, to really determine what is the outcome that, that you want, not, not what is the outcome that social media tells you that you should have, not what is the outcome that, you know, your neighbor looks like they have, but what is the outcome that you want? And then how do you feel good about the decisions that you make in pursuit of that? Um, I think that that's the most important um, and, and the lesson that I'm still learning when it comes to just life in general, but definitely yeah. finances uh, specifically. I think, you know, as a culture, we tend to focus a lot on there. God, I have so many thoughts going on right now. Um, one thing that I think is really important um, for people to uh, just help them be more content in general, you know, just life in general is figuring out what is enough look like for you? You know, what is enough? Because we're in this culture where, um, you know, more is better is a message that's pretty pervasive. 
I think that there's a dark side to personal finance sometimes in that there's a lot of emphasis on the individual. And I think you and I have talked about this before, that while I do believe that there is almost always something that somebody can do to improve their individual situation, let's not pretend that structural inequality and structural racism and structural sexism doesn't exist because those things have an impact as well. You know, the fact that um, the federal minimum wage is still $7.25. It may not be that, um, that, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yes, there are things we can do as individuals, but let's not forget that There is a bigger context, there is a bigger picture here that we're part of, and that it does have an effect on people. You know, the fact that um, women, for example, have to save more to have the same amount of money in retirement as a man, for example, because um, women are still underpaid, and women of color particularly compared to white women. Women are going to have um, less money in retirement because their Social Security is about $350 less on average, partly because of um, the gender pay gap being underpaid, but also because women take time out of the workforce to provide unpaid caregiving. That comes at a cost, you know, that is not free. Um, I read a great uh, article a while back during the pandemic that said something like, other countries have social safety nets, America has women. So I think that there's, um, it's just important to look at the big picture. Yeah, I, um, I mean, man, you're speaking my language. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, there was a con- I went to FinCon, um, conference in september and there was a love fincon it was amazing my first time in person my second time attending you know if we can call it that and uh there was a piece of information that just kind of resonates with me from one of the talks and it was around this idea that no one person can save the world right like you can't check all the boxes off but if the collection of us are working towards checking off the boxes as individuals within a community that we can get more done. One of the things that I walked away from the conference kind of like determined to do was step away from being very broad in my delivery and being very intentional about who my audience is, right? Um, And that it's okay for me to create content for people who experience like me, right? So I'm on TikTok and um, on TikTok, when I introduce myself or when I introduce my content, I say, my name is Rakim Sabri. I cover financial trauma and financial empowerment for people who look like me. And for a long time, I felt if I niche down and just specifically say that I'm creating content for Black people, that I am limiting my reach because non-Black people are going to see it and they're going to say, oh, well, this is not for me. But what I realized is that 
non-Black people are going to see my content and have insight into what is the Black experience because I'm not centering yeah. myself yeah. and I'm giving it, I'm giving it raw. I'm giving it as it is. And it's so valuable. And, 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 and I've, and I've realized my reach has grown significantly. Um, people can appreciate my content. The audience that I'm creating the content for can appreciate mm-hmm. my content, but also the audiences that stumble across my content can, can realize, oh, okay, this is a conversation that we're not having, or this is a conversation that we need to have, or this is some color or context to um, the overall picture that needs to be delivered. And, um, and I've been sharing you know, this story lately, and I kind of touched on it earlier. I was interviewed on a podcast uh, maybe last month or so, and the podcast host was a white guy. And he says to me, why do you think that people don't take retirement seriously until later in life? And I said, well, you know, some people don't think that they'll live that long. Mm-hmm. And he was like completely like <laughs> horrified, right? Like, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, yeah, like there are people who who don't think that they'll make it past 30. And so, you know, when I kind of touched on that earlier, um, I, you know, I, I think rounding out that statement gives it this context right there. I, I know that there are people, like I know people who have <laughs> had that mindset, right? And then I know people who that's completely foreign to. And so how do you bridge those worlds? And as somebody who's an educator or somebody who's an advocate, and certainly now somebody who, who, who's very active in this community um, and, and doing both, right? Educating and um, advocating. I think that those, those stories, those voices are important um, because then we can start solutioning instead of yes. like not talking about the elephant in the room. Yeah. So and yeah, I think, you know, <clears throat> super, super important. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought that up. It's, I think it's incredibly important to have as much diversity as possible because you don't know what you don't know. And um, there is such a range of experience and choices that are possible. So I think, you know, being, having the opportunity to hear as many different stories, ways of being, financial goals, Uh, ways to do money is good because then you have a choice. You know, you can be intentional about what you want. I would love to just get rid of the concept of retirement um, because I don't think it works for people anymore. I think that we're living in a different world. And what is one of the reasons I think that people, um, don't plan for or don't save for retirement is that it's far away for a lot of people. When you're in your 20s, the idea of future you being in your 60s or 70s, besides the fact that, you know, maybe you think you won't live that long, it's just so darn far away. And it's easy to think, well, I'll start saving later. You know, I'll do it someday. And then of course, someday, um, Someday comes sooner than you think. So what I would rather encourage people to do is instead of saving for retirement, let's not think that you're going to, you know, work for however long you're going to work, accumulate a big pile of money, 
that you don't know exactly how much it's going to be worth when you need to start spending it. And you don't know how long you're going to need to make it last for. That's never really made a lot of sense to me. Let's think about financial independence instead. How much money do I need? What's enough for me to live a life that you know is meaningful to me, gives me um, choices that I can make that make my life better, make my life fun? Um, <clears throat> how much money do I need to do that? And what are the ways that I can diversify my income streams so that I have enough monthly cash flow to live the life that I want without necessarily being tied down to a particular job or living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I, I like that. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of speaks to um, like the fire movement or principles in the fire movement, right? So fire is financial independence, retire early. And there's See, things I don't about think people should retire. I think the idea of retirement that you stop working and you're just going to like do nothing or play golf or um, do something frivolous for the rest of your life doesn't really make people happy. People, I think in order to really be happy, people need a sense of purpose and meaning. And for a lot of people that does come through work. Um, it doesn't always have to be paid work necessarily, but um, being engaged with other people, being engaged with the world, doing something that you think serves a purpose and has, you know, meaning. Um, those are things that I think make people happy. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, um, I have my feelings about the fire movement and some of those feelings are um, from a place of bias because I've just read articles and positions against it. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I think certainly like we're not put here to just work and then, you know, die. Right. And, and we're not, <laughs> we also don't want to just kind of wander aimlessly. Right. Especially, and this has been my experience, um, you know, kind of joking, but since leaving corporate America, um I kind of feel like I retired right like because mm -hmm. I'm because I'm the only person well outside of you know the the network of entrepreneur friends that I've developed you know my core group of friends and family members who are still working it's like oh I can't call you in the middle of the day because you're at work right and so it's just, you know if there is no purpose tied into the work that I do and you know fortunately there is um, I feel like I would kind of lose my mind. It would it would be like being being free in prison, <laughs> right? Like right. you know you right. you just you're just you're just spending your day. So I agree. I think you know definitely um, work optional should be mm -hmm. kind of a focus, um, uh, or or rather work intentional should be a focus. Mm -hmm. And I mean I had a conversation I don't know with who or where, but it was around this idea that. Um, you know, I started working when I was 16 years old. Um, and I just started working because I was told, like, that's what I should do. Mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's the experience for a lot of people. Like, they start working because that's what they're supposed to do. They need to start getting experience so that they can get, you know, the next job and the next job and the next job. And a lot of times that happens with education, too, um, mm -hmm. where, you know, 
high school students are told they need to go to college and go get a degree. And they're like, well, they don't know what they want to do yet. So um, I think everybody should have to take a gap year between high school and college. I was just, I was just going to say that when you're 18. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Like, I think, you know, the, and, and maybe this is really radical of a thought, but I think that the life that people um, kind of like romanticize associated mm-hmm. with retirement mm-hmm. should be lived like in your twenties and your thirties. And then, you know, if you're going to go and, and work, and, 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 you know, I, I think I want to be intentional with the words I use here, work, not labor, um, for the rest of your life, then, you know, that's, that's what you do. But I mean, by the time we reach retirement age, we're just so like tired, right? Like we're so beat up. Like we have life, we have obligations, we have responsibilities. It's just like, how can you enjoy yourself? Like, and so, um, yeah, super radical thought, but I, I think I agree with you. Um, I don't know that I necessarily agree or align to the concept of retirement in the way that it is like marketed. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, freedom and to your point, financial independence is really the goal. And um, and man, if we can start Let's creating start pathways in- for that to happen, right? Like. <laughs> creating pathways for that to happen, you know, that, that, again, that's super radical, right? Because then people can focus on the accumulation of assets. And like Mm -hmm. you said, the diversification of cash flow and, um, you know, being more intentional with how they not only pass their time, but how they make their money. Well, you know, one of the things that was really pivotal for me in my own personal finance journey Um, was reading a book called Your Money or Your Life. Um, And one of the things that they want you to do is to like add up how much money you have earned up until, you know, this point in your life, however old you are. And I was kind of shocked to realize that even though I thought I was doing okay, um, I had, you know, gone to college, first generation college student, paid for it all myself. Um, I had my own business. I was self-employed. I had a house, um, but I also had a boatload of credit card debt. I had student loan debt Um, for all the money that I had earned in my life up until that point. I had very little to show for it other than basically a boatload of debt. Um, And it made me think, gosh, I can't I don't want to, and it's not really feasible for me to continue doing this for the rest of my life, because at some point I won't be able to sustain it. Being able to live a life that makes you happy, um, that lets you like live within your means, pay your bills, have some financial stability is really like what most people would like to have. I think that would be, that would be a great thing. Um, I know for myself personally, um, that, you know, having that kind of wake up call, um, that was one of the things that made me learn how to invest. And I, this is just my personal opinion. It's not like professional financial advice. You 
shouldn't like rush out and, and do this just because it's what I decided to do. Um, I began investing in dividend paying stocks and it's taken a number of years, but at this point, I've replaced 30% of my income with dividend income. And is it enough for me to live on? No, but it's been a great um, source of financial stability um, during periods where I got laid off from a job or my husband got laid off from his job, knowing that we had, you know, this income that we could count on, um, you know, really helped us sleep better at night, um, really helped kind of tide us over uh, between, you know, paid employment. And it will be, you know, something that will help support us when we are no longer working full time. Anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Martha, tell the people where they can find you. Um, if you want to be found, I, I guess I guess I had to ask sure. that. But um, where you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. Okay. And I'll include uh I'll include the link to your profile and the show notes. Okay. I um I thank you so much for spending your time with us today and for sharing all of that great wisdom. Thanks. Thanks. It's truly been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Hey guys, Rakim Sabri here, and I just wanted to drop by and thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please share with your friends, rate my episode on whatever your preferred listening platform is. And if you have any feedback, reach out to me on social everywhere at Rakim Sabri, no underscores, hyphens, or periods. Until next time, I'll see you guys in the comments.